you have your Bibles, turn with me to the very end of the book, to Revelation chapter 1. And now before some of you get your hopes up, uh, going, finally, I've been asking them to preach through Revelation for a while now. This is a short series, so this is just one sermon. But I love this book. I love this chapter. I think God has so much to teach us from this this morning. But before we dive into the word, let me give you a couple of things that are going on here at Coastal. So first of all, I want to highlight next Sunday, right after the second service, make sure you're here. We're having our youth camp barbecue fundraiser lunch. So stay after church next Sunday after the second service. We're praying for another pretty day like this. Uh, so we can have it outside. We're gonna be having a barbecue lunch. A couple of our grill masters here at Coastal Gloucester are gonna be making some delicious food for us. And it's gonna be donation only, but all of the money goes towards sending our kids to camp. So we'd really love for you to come. All the money goes toward a great cause. So I hope that you guys will come out next week, have some good food, some good fellowship for a great cause. And speaking of camp, there's still time. If you have a middle or a high school student are interested in going to LVR Longview Ranch in Tennessee, it's June 20th through 25th. Uh, You can check out more info, gocoastal.org slash summer events, or you can talk to Pastor Steve. He would love to give you some more info about summer camp this year. Finally, I wanted to make mention that we've got lots of spiritual formation classes going on this summer at all of our campuses. And I wanted to very selfishly plug one that we're doing here at the Gloucester campus. So the four Wednesdays in June, we're gonna be going through a fantastic book together called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. I just ordered a bunch of copies. So if you're interested in going through the class, we'll be selling those starting next week. Uh, It says six to eight. We're actually gonna do 6.30. So if you come at six. We'll just hang out for a little bit. Uh, But it's going to be 6.30 on Wednesdays in June. So I would love, this is one of my favorite books on marriage. I think it's fantastic. I'd love to go through this book together as a church family. All right. All righty. Revelation chapter one. This morning, we're starting a new series called Now. So here's the deal. Last week was Easter Sunday. It's awesome. We're all here. We got our pretty Easter dresses on, our pretty Easter suits on, and we are celebrating. We got the Facebook status that says, he is risen. And we're super hyped up about the resurrection of Jesus, as we should be. But that leads us to an important question. What now? What's he doing now? He's risen. So now what? We want to try to answer that question the next three weeks. So we're asking the question, what is Jesus doing now? And this week, I want to start with the question, what is Jesus like now? What is Jesus like now? Now, I personally love books with pictures in them. Uh, They're more on my reading level. And the unfortunate thing, depending on your perspective about the Bible, is that it doesn't come with a picture of Jesus. Nowhere in this book do we get a picture of Jesus. In fact, nowhere in the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus's life, do we get much of a description of Jesus's physical appearance. So let me just burst some bubbles this morning. If you type in Jesus on Google Images, what picture are you going to get? You're going to get the pop culture rendition of Jesus with you know, the long flowing brown hair and the very nicely manicured goatee. And uh, Vody Bauckham described this idea of Jesus as a gorgeous European shampoo model is often what this image of Jesus that we have in pop culture and to burst some bubbles, guys, he was a Middle Eastern carpenter in the first century. He most certainly didn't look like that. But the point is the only place in the Bible where we get any kind of description of Jesus's appearance is right here in Revelation. And even this is intended to communicate what he's like, not necessarily what he looks like, but what he is 
like. And I think we desperately need to understand this vision of Jesus and what he is like so that we will respond appropriately. And if I could summarize John's description of Jesus in one word, this is what it would be. Awesome. He describes Jesus as awesome. Now that's a word we got to define very carefully because it's a word we throw around a lot, isn't it? That pizza was awesome. That movie I watched last night was awesome. I went to the grocery store and I got 50 cents off a gallon of milk. It was awesome. Or whatever. We, we throw that word around a lot, but dictionary.com defines the word awesome as an in, inspiring and overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear. Not quite sure if that applies to your pizza unless you go to New York or something, uh, but it doesn't inspire an overwhelming feeling of reverence. That's exactly how Jesus is described here. As someone who is deserving of our awe, of our reverence, of our worship, of our celebration. Yet too often in the church, we yawn at Jesus. Too often we are bored with Jesus. Too often we treat the Jesus who is awesome as casual. And here is my concern. I think we do that because the Jesus that we often believe in in the church today is safe, soft, and nice rather than the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus that we often bow before is more life coach than savior, more therapist than Lord, more buddy than king of kings. What we need so desperately is to soak in this biblical depiction of Jesus so that we will respond the same way that John did, so that we will fall on our faces with reverence and with awe, and we will give our lives to serving him for his glory. So with this in mind, let me give you my main point this morning. The risen Jesus is awesome. So we should respond with reverence and with love. With this in mind, let's read this incredible passage of scripture together. Revelation 1, we're going to read verses 9 through 18 together. The word of God says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. Let's pray. 
Lord, would you fill us with such an overwhelming sense of your character and your power and your glory this morning that the only proper response would be to fall on our faces along with John. Lord, would you overwhelm us with who you are today so that we would live our lives in awe of you. Would you help us to repent of treating you casually and rather come before you with reverence? And then and only then, Lord, will we love you the way that we ought to. Lord, would you help us to see more of your glory in your word this morning that we might be transformed from one degree of glory into another to be more like Christ. God, we love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's start with a little bit of context to try to understand what's happening here. Now, the book of Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible that was written. Scholars debate the precise date. I think it was written around 95 to 96 AD during the reign of the emperor Domitian. And during this time, the church is suffering intense persecution and the apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos. This was a small little island in the Aegean Sea that was a prison colony that Rome sent prisoners to often. This text says that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he hears a voice commanding him to write what he has seen and heard. And now just to be clear, this is a footnote. Uh, He gives him a revelation, not revelations, Just to be clear, there's no S on the end of the book name. Uh, We'll take that for what it's worth. We'll continue. This revelation was given to John to pass on to seven local churches in Asia. And if you look at them on a map, it's actually an ancient postal route across Asia that this would have been given to. And so the number of seven indicates completion. It's a symbolic number depicting completion. So really, this is for these seven local churches, but it has application to the whole church at all times. So we need to understand the message that we have here. We also need to keep in mind the life situation. John is the last living apostle. The rest of them have been martyred. He has been exiled. The church is suffering persecution. He would have been tempted to despair during this time. And the church is suffering. One of the main themes in Revelation indeed is perseverance in the midst of suffering. So I think this depiction of Jesus was intended to bring courage. It was intended to bring courage to fearful, persecuted believers. So John hears Jesus, he sees him upon turning and he is totally overwhelmed by Jesus. And he's searching, trying to find the language that can describe him. That's why he keeps using the word like. He was like a son of man. It was like the sun shining in full strength, like white wool, like a flame of fire. He's searching for language to describe this one before him who was so magnificent. And I think in the midst of this vision, we learn five things about what the risen Jesus is like. And we learned five things about the identity of Jesus. So first of all, we learned that Jesus is both human and divine. Jesus is both human and divine. Jesus is both God and man. This speaks to Jesus's identity. We get one of many clues here of the identity of Jesus. Now, when John is overwhelmed before Jesus and he keeps describing, he's like this, he's like this, he's like this. These descriptions that he's giving sound really weird to us, but they're very purposeful. 
Every one of them is very, very purposeful. And John, when he's trying to describe Jesus, he's using what's already in his mind and in his heart, which is the Old Testament scriptures. As I've studied this text, I've counted at least six or seven Old Testament references, if not more. The book of Revelation, more than any other book, is absolutely laced with Old Testament allusions and references and echoes. So I think the key to understanding these descriptions is seeing how they're used in the Old Testament and how John is using it here in Revelation. So here's what we're gonna do. Take your Bible, use your finger, use a connect card, use your pen, use your phone, use whatever. Leave it in Revelation 1 because we're gonna be kind of be flipping back and forth a little bit. Then flip over with me, if you will, to the book of Daniel. And we're gonna start in Daniel chapter seven. In my Bible, that is on page 745. That probably doesn't help you much. Uh, but on my Bible, it's 745. So let's start here. Revelation 13, ch- chapter one, verse 13, rather. John says that he saw one like a son of man. Now, if you've read through the gospels, you've heard that phrase son of man, right? Jesus used it over 80 times to refer to himself. The phrase he used to describe himself more than anything else, that he's the son of man. And we typically assume, okay, son of God means that he's God. Son of man means that he's a human being. And now there is some truth to that. But really when Jesus says son of man, he had a specific biblical prophecy from the book of Daniel in mind. He's referencing this vision that Daniel received in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. Listen to this. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, you see that? One like a son of man. Exact same words. This is in Revelation. And what did this son of man do? He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you, are you starting to see what John is doing here in his description of Jesus? This one like a son of man in the book of Daniel was a king. And he was a king who was a man, yet he was to receive a universal kingdom. All peoples and languages would serve him. And it would be an everlasting kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. It's a human being who is going to be the everlasting almighty king. That's what he's saying when he says he's one like a son of man. But it gets better. He's not done with Daniel 7. Because if you keep going in Revelation chapter one, that's why I said, leave your finger there because you got to flip back. Revelation 1.14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool. Now, is this just making a comment about Jesus's hair color? Like, I get it. It's been 60 years since his earthly ministry. So had Jesus just aged a little bit while in heaven? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's getting at. Because if you back up in Daniel chapter seven, now Daniel 7.9, this is what it says. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Now pause. Who's the ancient of days? That's God, right? I mean, you know your 90s Christian music, don't you? (laughs) Blessing and honor, glory and power. Anybody? Be unto the ancient of days, right? That's God. The ancient of days is God. So in Daniel 7, thrones were placed. The ancient of days took his seat His clothing was white as snow. And then what's the next part say? The hair of his head was like pure wool. Now are you starting to get the idea? 
John is pulling from this vision in Daniel chapter seven, and he is applying both language of the human king and of God to Jesus. He's saying Jesus is both. Jesus is the ancient of days who was seated on the throne, and Jesus is the son of man. He's the king. He's the everlasting universal king. Isn't that awesome? He is both human and he is divine. And here's why that matters for us today, guys. The identity of Jesus should overwhelm us. That this one who came to save us, to die on the cross for our sins, we're talking about the ancient of days here. We're talking about the everlasting king here. This is the one who came to this world to die on the cross for our sins. It should cause us to treat him with worship, but also with reverence, with awe. Have you ever seen those t-shirts since we're talking about the 90s? Uh, you ever seen these t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy? You ever seen anybody? Or maybe you have one uh, back in your closet somewhere or something. Listen, yes, it's true. We are invited into an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our brother. We are invited to talk to him whenever. We are invited into a very intimate relationship with Jesus. All of that is true but we should never treat Jesus casually. Jesus is much more than just our homeboy. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the ancient of days. And even Jesus' best friend during his earthly ministry, John, we're talking about, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who leaned on Jesus during the Last Supper, even he falls on his face as though dead when he sees Jesus. He is worthy of our reverence and of our awe. And perhaps we treat Jesus far too casually because we are not nearly overwhelmed enough. So Jesus is both human and divine. But as we keep going in this description of him in Revelation 1, we see that Jesus is God's messenger. Jesus is also God's messenger. Now, in the context of Revelation, Jesus is the one who is bringing this revelation to John. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning that it's coming from Jesus Christ. He is God's messenger. And this is not the only passage, Daniel 7. It's not the only passage even in Daniel that John is pulling from. This is where it gets even more confusing. So buckle up. Now we're going to Daniel chapter 10 because there's another passage that John is using and applying to Jesus here. So just for recap's sake, listen to Revelation 1. It describes Jesus as clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. All right, you got that in your mind? You got it memorized? All right, Daniel chapter 10, verses five and six. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Does that sound familiar? It should, I should have put a chart up there showing you all of the similarities. It's incredible. And by the way, if we were to keep going in Daniel 10, Daniel ends up falling on his face as though dead. 
So I think that John is very intentionally alluding to this passage, but here's where it gets weird. Because he's already said Jesus is the ancient of days, and he's already said that Jesus is the son of man, but you know who it is in Daniel chapter 10? It's an angel. Now, if it's an angel or the angel of the Lord, you decide. But either way, it is an angel. It is a person bringing Daniel a message. So what's going on here? I think that he's depicting Jesus as God's messenger, the one who reveals the will and the purposes and the character of God. And in this way, this is essential for us. This is absolutely essential for us. Without Jesus, we could not know God. We could not know anything about God. Because John 1.18 says this, no one has ever seen God. Scripture says we can't see his face and live. We can't know him. We would be completely in the dark. And yet it says the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. That's Jesus. Jesus is God, God the son who is at the father's side. And he is the one who makes God known to us. He is the messenger of God. Indeed, he is the message of God. He is the word. Here's what this means for us today, church. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who reveals the heart of the father to us, that reveals the character and the will of God to us because he is God. Colossians calls him the image of the invisible God. Hebrews calls him the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was talking to Philip in the upper room and he says, just show us the father and that'll be enough for us. And what does Jesus say? He says, you don't get it yet. If you've seen me, you've seen the father because Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. And this way, Jesus is the ultimate messenger of God. So Jesus is human and divine. Jesus is God's messenger. Next, Jesus is depicted as a judge here. Jesus is the judge. I just want to comment on one of the depictions here is Jesus with eyes like fire. This to me suggests a penetrating gaze that Jesus can see everything with eyes that are like fire. And as the judge, Jesus sees everything and is thus capable of rendering perfect justice. Scripture is clear that there's coming a day where Jesus is going to judge the world. This is what it says in 2 Timothy chapter four, for example. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. I don't think there's any anyone excluded from those categories. That's everybody, right? The living and the dead, he's gonna judge by his appearing and his kingdom. Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is going to judge the living and the dead and he will render perfect justice. And if we're being honest, man, that's an image of Jesus that we are not as comfortable with as other ones. Jesus as judge is not as popular as Jesus as shepherd, but we need both and we'll get there. But for now, let me tell you why it matters that Jesus is the judge in our lives. I think it should both sober us and it should comfort us. What do I mean? First, it should sober us that Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead, right? It should sober us that we are going to give an account for our lives one day. He says, we're gonna give an account even for every careless word that we speak. Jesus is the one with eyes like fire. He's the one who sees everything. He's the one who knows everything. So let's get real practical for a minute. When we're alone on the internet and we think that nobody sees what we're looking at, Jesus does. 
when we're doing our taxes and we're like, does the IRS need to know about that? Jesus knows about that, whether or not the IRS does, right? The way that we speak to our spouse and to our kids and we're like, I'm glad nobody at church heard that. Jesus did. When we're looking for a show to watch on Netflix and we're like, would I watch this if Jesus was in the room? Probably not. He's there. He sees. He is the one with eyes like a flame of fire. Are you getting the point here? Jesus sees all as the one with eyes like fire and he will hold us accountable. We will give an account for our lives. That should motivate us toward holiness, shouldn't it? It should motivate us toward walking in righteousness in our lives because Jesus knows and Jesus sees. And yet, at the same time, not just trying to scare you, because this should comfort us. This should comfort us that Jesus is our judge. Because first of all, if you're in Christ, there's no more condemnation left for you. You're free, amen? Even when you face the judge, your verdict is going to be not guilty. Will you give an account for your life? Absolutely. But that's not whether or not you're saved, But here's the deal. This should comfort us in this way also. Every person in this room has been sinned against. Every person in this room has been hurt by other people. Every person in this room has suffered an injustice at the hands of another person. As sinners, we are, every person in this room is both a sinner and a sufferer, all of us. And sometimes in this life, justice is not done. Sometimes human courts get it wrong. Sometimes the guilty go free and sometimes the innocent are declared guilty. We don't always get it right in this life, but there will come a day when the perfect judge will judge the world and perfect justice will be done and every sin that has been committed against you will be made right. When Jesus judges the world, every single sin will be punished either on the cross or in hell. God will deal with sin. God is holy. God is a just judge. That should comfort us and it should free us from trying to take justice into our own hands. It frees us to live out what Romans 12, 19 says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So I don't have to try and get those people back who hurt me, but rather I can leave it to the wrath of God. I can trust that Jesus is a just judge and Jesus will deal with it in his timing and that his justice will be perfect whereas mine will be sinful. Jesus will do perfect justice. That should comfort us. God saw every single tear in your suffering and he will deal with it perfectly. Jesus is the just judge. But next, this passage depicts Jesus as a warrior. Jesus as a warrior. I love this one. Yeah, being a guy, we love our war movies. You know, this one, Jesus as judge. Jesus is the one who has feet like bronze. That suggests stability and strength. Jesus with the one that has a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. But the idea is he's depicted as a warrior. And this isn't the only passage in Revelation that he's depicted as a warrior. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. 
Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's good stuff, isn't it? That's my Jesus. That is awesome. Let's give just a couple of things about this passage. First of all, first things first, he's got a tattoo. Like that's pretty cool, right? It's written on his robe and on his thigh. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King He is the Lord. It says in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. He still has his eyes like a flame of fire. He's still wearing the robe, but this time it's dipped in blood. The first time he comes privately to John to give him a revelation in Revelation 1. Now by Revelation 19, he comes with an army. He comes with the armies of heaven to make war. And he has that same sword coming out of his mouth, but this time it's the sword with which he will strike down the nations. And in fulfillment of Psalm 2, he will rule them with a rod of iron. It says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. This Jesus is awesome. I was talking to Pastor Steve this last week and he said to me, he came the first time as a sacrificial lamb. He's coming the next time as a conquering king. He came the first time as a servant, the suffering servant. He's coming the next time as a warrior. He came the first time to shed his own blood for the sins of his people. He's coming next time to shed the blood of his enemies. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty This text says, Jesus is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the ruling and reigning king of kings. And when he returns, he will reign over all. Let's be honest this morning. That's a depiction of Jesus that we do not think about very often, especially in our culture today. We are very comfortable talking about the love of Jesus, but we are very uncomfortable talking about the wrath of Jesus. We are very comfortable talking about his grace and his mercy, but we are very uncomfortable talking about his holiness. We are comfortable talking about his wisdom for our lives, but we are uncomfortable talking about him as our judge. But if we are going to have the whole Christ, the whole Jesus, as he is depicted in the Bible, we must bow before our savior who is both merciful and mighty, who is both grace and truth, who is both lion and lamb, who is both servant and king, who is both love and power, who is both warrior and savior. 
We need the whole Christ. And can I suggest to you this morning that perhaps part of the reason why we often struggle in our lives as Christians with sin, why we're often fearful, why we're often weak, is because the Jesus that we believe in is too safe? You know the part from the Chronicles of Narnia, don't you? Lucy's asking about Aslan. He's a lion. Well, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king. Of course Jesus isn't safe. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth for crying out loud. But he's good. He's the king. And when we're struggling with sin in our lives and it seems like we can't get the upper hand, maybe we need Jesus to go to war on our behalf. Could it be part of the reason why in the church our witness is often weak and ineffective because our Jesus is often weak and ineffective, at least the way we perceive him? We need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the one who's coming back and he is going to rule the world. And so the world can try as hard as they can. Give us the worst you got. Bring it on when it comes to persecution because we have the gospel and because Jesus is a warrior and because he wins. That's where the courage comes from, from having the whole Christ. And just to make one comment about his weapon, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His weapon is his word. That's what it means that it's coming out of his mouth. It means that his weapon is his word. It's similar to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word's powerful, y'all. The word is powerful. You know, the great armor of, passage, uh, armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, what's the only offensive weapon that's given? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God's word is like a sword. It is powerful. You ever get up in the morning and read your Bible and you wonder if you're reading it or if it's reading you? You start reading this book and God, it seems like, God, did you just drop this passage in here this morning just for me? Because you are stepping on my toes it feels like that because the word of God is living and active because the Holy Spirit speaks through the word to convict us, to challenge us, to move us toward holiness. So let me challenge you with this, guys. Let this powerful word do its work in your life because this sword in the hands of God becomes a scalpel in our lives to mold us and to shape us and to make us more and more like Jesus. It's been said many times, I think Spurgeon said it, but it's been attributed to so many people, I'm not really sure who. But it's been said so many times that the word of God is like a lion. You don't defend a lion, you open the cage door. <laughs> you let him out. Guys, if I could redirect that, the word of God is like a sword. You don't need to defend your sword, you need to start swinging it. You need to use it. The word of God is powerful. Let's use it in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. Our last point this morning, this passage depicts Jesus as our savior. Jesus is our savior. Verses 17 and 18, it closes with this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. 
Let's start with John's reaction. After seeing this, understandably so, he falls on his face as though dead. This is a common reaction in scripture. When people see the holiness of God, there are many examples, but Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah gets this vision of God upon his throne, he falls on his face and starts pronouncing curses on himself. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. This is a common reaction, an inappropriate reaction to seeing the holiness of God. And even John, even Jesus' best friend, when he sees Jesus, is overwhelmed in his presence. But Jesus, even though he's a warrior, even though he's a judge, yes, his heart is still filled with love and compassion and mercy for his people. We don't want to swing too far in the other direction either. That's just as dangerous. He still has a heart filled with love and tenderness and mercy for his people. And we see that with those two words, the two most beautiful words in scripture, fear not. He laid his right hand on John, that same right hand that held the seven stars, said, fear not. This morning, if you're anxious, if you're fearful about some circumstance in your life, this is exactly what you need. You need to see Jesus rightly. And only then can you receive that message, fear not. His heart is still filled with love for his people. And then he encourages John by saying, I am the first and the last. Something we hear often throughout Revelation. I'm the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. And it's a reference, you guessed it, to the Old Testament where God said through Isaiah in Isaiah 44, six, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So first of all, Jesus is obviously by calling himself the first and the last claiming to be God, but he's also saying that he is eternal. He is without beginning. He is without end. He is the A through Z. He is the first and he is the last. But also, he says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I think it's interesting that the apostle John had spent the last 60 years of his life preaching the gospel only for Jesus to show up and preach the gospel to him. Jesus showed up and said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This incredible person, this king, this ancient of days, this warrior, this judge died. He went to the cross. He bore the wrath of God in the place of all of God's people on that cross, dying for our sins. But then he rose from the dead. And it's not just temporary because Lazarus, as we talked about last week, rose only to die again. But Jesus is alive forevermore. He eternally rose from the dead. He is the living one. He is alive forevermore. And when he rose, he rose with the keys. It says, I have the keys to death in Hades in his hand. And now a key suggests possession. It suggests ownership. If you were to go across the street this afternoon and buy a car, what would be the act that signified that it is now your car when they handed you the keys? It suggests possession. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated death. And now he owns it. Jesus is the Lord of life and death. 
they are in his hand. Jesus is sovereign over life and over death. And in light of that, now the fear not makes a lot more sense. John, what do you have to fear? Life and death are in my hands like a key. You have nothing to fear. Life and death are in the hands of Jesus. And this is the gospel. Very simply, this one little verse gives us the gospel that Jesus, the first and the last, the almighty God, who is also a human being, died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. Now he is alive forevermore. And how do we respond to the gospel? By falling on our faces like John, by turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've never turned from your sins and trusted in him, we're gonna have some prayer team members up front at the end of the service who would love to talk with you and pray with you about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. But as we're closing this morning, let me leave you with two takeaways. The first is this, be in awe of Jesus. As we started the sermon with, Jesus is awesome in the true sense of the word. He is worthy of awe. So be in awe of Jesus. When was the last time that you were in awe of something? Not in like of something, but in awe of something, something that inspired an overwhelming sense of reverence. As I look back at my life, one of those moments when, is when I was before Victoria Falls uh, in Zambia, Africa, the biggest waterfall in the world. It's like three miles wide. It is amazing. It is absolutely incredible. And you stand in awe looking at God's creation, looking at the work of his fingers, and you see this incredible waterfall on a more personal level. I remember being in awe when Megan Luciano walked down the aisle to become Megan Weiss. Oh, that's the other kind of awe. Um, did that, totally did that for the brownie points. Uh, I, I remember being in awe when Hannah and when Leah came into this world. The first time I saw those baby girls, it's a feeling of both of joy, but also of awe. But listen, as amazing as all of those moments were and unforgettable as they were, none of them will even be able to begin to compare to that moment when I see Jesus. the greatest experience of awe in this life will compare to seeing Jesus like a ray of light compares to the sun, like a little trickling stream compares to the ocean. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is awesome. And here's the deal. This awe of Jesus is not just something that waits for then. It can be a lifestyle right now. God calls us to live in perpetual awe of Jesus. And how do we do that? When we look into the word of God and through the eyes of faith, we gaze upon Christ, we stand in awe of him. And here's what that does. 2 Corinthians chapter three says that when we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory unto another. As we gaze upon Christ, we become like him. And this is an important principle in life. You will become like what you behold. What you stand in awe of will shape the direction of your life. And this leads naturally to our final takeaway this morning. And with this, I'm gonna invite both the worship team and the prayer team to come forward. Are you overwhelmed with Jesus or are you bored with him? Are you overwhelmed with Jesus or are you bored with him? Does the Jesus of the Bible cause us to yawn and look at our watch? 
or does the Jesus of the Bible cause us to fall on our face in worship? My concern is that the reason why we're often bored with Jesus is because we have forgotten how awesome he truly is. We've stopped being overwhelmed by his glory. We've started to treat him casually instead of reverently. So this is the main application point of my message today. The more in awe of Jesus you are, the more overwhelmed by Jesus you are, the smaller everything else will become. When we look at our lives, and sometimes we can look at the problems and the sins and the trials and the temptations in our lives, and we can start to think that our problems are too big. We don't know how we're going to handle them because our problems are just too big. In those moments, we need to remind ourselves, our problem is not too big, but our Jesus is too small. When in reality, the bigger, the clearer we see Jesus and the more overwhelmed with him we are, everything else will get smaller. That's the solution. It is only when we see Jesus rightly, when we see Jesus clearly, when we are in awe of Jesus, when we are overwhelmed by Jesus, that we will see anything else rightly in the right perspective. And when we see Jesus rightly, even the worst moment of our lives will be a slight momentary affliction. It will be a small thing compared to Jesus. That's the solution to everything. Are you fearful or anxious or or angry or bitter or any of those things this morning? What you need is a bigger, clearer vision of Jesus. Are you struggling or addicted to some sin in your life that is just kicking your butt and you can't seem to get victory no matter what you do over this sin in your life? You know what you need fundamentally is a bigger and clearer vision of Jesus. Are you walking through a season of suffering right now and you're tempted to despair and you don't know what you're gonna do? What you need is a bigger and a clearer vision of Jesus. And then as the song says, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and we look full on his wonderful face, the things of this world will grow strangely dim and the light of his glory and grace. So it is my prayer that this morning we would be in awe of the risen Jesus, that we would be overwhelmed by the risen Jesus, and that this would motivate us to fall on our faces along with John and to give him our lives with reverence and with love. Let's close with prayer. Oh Lord, we love you. Forgive us, Lord, for treating you casually. Forgive us for becoming bored with you. Lord, Give us a heart and a mind to worship and serve you with everything that is within us. Help us to be overwhelmed in your presence. Lord, I pray for the one who's here today who's struggling, Lord, and things that we've just talked about. I pray that you would open up their hearts and minds to see you more clearly today. God, I pray that you would work in our church and cause us all to fall before you in worship out of love for you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close with singing this morning.